0: hi i'm michael hawk and welcome to nature's archive podcast where i interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation ecology and wildlife restoration if you have a fascination with the natural world or would like to learn how you too can make a difference regardless of your current circumstances this podcast is for you my promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished but also how and why and if you come along for this journey i also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us all So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoy what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and share the episode with a friend. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to my second in-between episode. These are short episodes I do in-between my interview episodes where I cover different interesting subjects. I'm calling this one today Cool Tools Nature Identification Edition going to cover what I think are great tools that aid you in identifying and thus learning about the nature that's all around us. I'm going to cover phone apps and websites, optics, field guides, and what makes for a great field guide. And I have a lot of specific recommendations as well. Before I get started though, I wanted to spend a short moment addressing the historic wildfires that are now occurring in Northern California. I live in San Jose and we're sandwiched in between three of these large fires. And two of those now are in the top three ever in California. In fact, 17 of the top 20 California fires of all time have occurred since 2003. While the 2020 fires were started by natural causes, lightning in this case, it's clear that the enormity of the blazes is anything but natural. These fires are a microcosm of the importance of ecology and environmental stewardship, and California is not alone. Arizona, Oregon, Colorado, Montana, British Columbia, and the list goes on. Other Western states and provinces have had similarly frightening trends over the last decade or two. So why has the Western U.S. had so many large fires in recent years? Here's a quick list of reasons, and you'll see how everything interrelates. Of course, the story is nuanced, and I can't cover it all. First, we have many, many years, in fact, decades, of fire suppression policy that's allowed fuels to build up in many of our forests. These are things like shrubs, branches, leaves, pine needles. They accumulate on the floor. The forests grow more dense. And as a result of this suppression policy, more and more development has occurred in fire-prone areas. These could be resort towns, cabins, other things. And this just leads to a vicious cycle where we must suppress fires to save people and their property. Of course... Fuel buildup wasn't a primary contributor in all of these fires. Some of these were in grasslands or mixed oak woodland habitats that don't quite have the same ecology. Next we have diseases and failing forest health. White pine blister rust has been a multi-decade problem and sudden oak death has been on the rise this century as well. And the most severe drought in recorded California history, much of the west for that matter, occurred between 2012 and 2015, causing massive die-offs. One study who looked into how this affected our forests found that the worst impact was right around 3,800 feet elevation where close to 80% mortality rate occurred. If you drive through those areas, it's very obvious where you see stands of just brown and dead trees as far as you can see. Now the drought stress combined with disease and warming temperatures makes the forest more susceptible to the normal threats that are always there. Things like native boring beetles that again cause more disease and more death in the forest. And of course, this is all set in a backdrop, where as the West was settled, many non-native grasses and trees were introduced. Many of these are not at all fire-friendly. They don't fit into the ecosystem. As an example, I see eucalyptus trees in foothill properties all around the area. They're basically acting like towering matchsticks just waiting to burn. So when a fire does start, regardless of the cause, we potentially have years of excess fuel buildup, diseased and dead trees ready to burn, resulting in larger, hotter fires that don't just burn the surface of the ground, but climb into the canopies and kill even the most resilient trees. And in the 2020 fires, this was preceded by an unprecedented heat, creating even more of a tinderbox. But if recent history and climate models are any indicator, this year's unprecedented heat will quickly be thrust down the list as hotter and hotter years occur. Fixing these problems is going to take many years of effort, concerted effort, and probably unpopular policies and compromises. Are we up to the task? I'm not a fire ecologist, just an informed citizen who's interested in the subject, so please forgive me if the short blurb is incomplete or has any inaccuracies. I'd love to hear your comments, especially if there is anything inaccurate or that you want to add, so go to the show notes at podcast.naturesarchive.com or email me at naturesarchivepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if you know a fire ecologist or a similar expert that you think would make for a good guest on the show, please let me know. Now on to the regular episode. As I said at the beginning, I'm calling this one Cool Tools Nature Identification Edition. First, a shout out to one of my favorite websites and podcasts, Cool Tools. Cool Tools is one of Kevin Kelly's brainchildren. Kevin is known for many things. He's the founding executive editor of Wired Magazine, publisher of the Whole Earth Catalog, and so much more. Cool Tools was one of his creations from back in 2003. It started as a website, which still exists today at kk.org/slash cool tools. It's also a podcast now that I really enjoy listening to. Each episode, they interview a guest who typically has a specific expertise, and they present three or four cool tools that they use and why they use them. In their definition, tools are very broadly defined, basically anything useful. On their website, in fact, it says that a cool tool can be a book, gadget, software, video, map, hardware, material, or website that is tried and true. So in that light, I present Nature Identification Cool Tools. This is obviously a really huge topic, so I won't get into too much depth, I'll just try to cover a lot of ground, and perhaps I can expand upon this more in the future. My first cool tool is a class of tools, actually, field guides. A good field guide has a few key attributes to look for. First, it needs to be laid out in intuitive and logical order. Of course, intuitive might be subject to the knowledge of the user. Advanced users might like to have a taxonomic order. I, however, really prefer to have an arrangement where similar-looking species are grouped together, so you can have a visual perspective. Another important attribute is good photos or illustrations. Yes, many taxa require a much more nuanced approach to identify them than just the visual attributes, And most species of any taxa have variances in how they look, but the illustrations at least get you into the right ballpark. Maps are very important to give you a rough idea if you even have a chance of seeing the organism that's outlined in the field guide. Detailed maps that show added information, like seasonality, are very important as well. Next, it's extremely important to highlight behavioral and habitat relationships. The maps that I just mentioned at least tell you that you have a chance, but so many birds, butterflies, dragonflies, plants, etc. will only be found in very specific habitats. So even if the map makes it look as if you should be able to see something commonly in an area, you need to read the text to understand where you need to go to actually see it. And great field guides highlight identification challenges. They might mention what the look-alike species are and point out the unique field marks to tell them apart, or emphasize how localized a species might be. When it comes to field guides, local and more specific taxa coverage are almost always better. When I first started getting interested in being a naturalist, I was drawn to the broad-based field guides like Birds of North America, it covers a wide swath, North America. The production quality of these guides are often a lot better than the local guides, and that can really persuade a purchase. But what the local guides might lack in production quality, they often make up for in content. They often have better maps, more detailed seasonal information, and references to very specific locations. That said, some of my favorite field guides do remain these broader guides. I probably lean this way because I tend to travel a moderate amount, so buying a guide that covers a wide area saves me a little bit of money. Here are a few of my favorites dragonflies and damselflies of the west by dennis paulson it's a bit heavy it's a little bit large but it ticks all the marks i mentioned above the extra size is worth it and it's there because it also has an extra emphasis on the habitat and life history i just love that i really like to understand why an organism is where it is and what it's doing there how it relates to the environment and if you live in the eastern part of the united states there's also an eastern version the Kaufman Field Guide to Butterflies of North America manages to cram 2,300 images of about 750 species into just 390 pages. It's perfectly sized, and the images are uniquely detailed, show consistent poses, allowing for easy comparison. It's my go-to butterfly book. A couple decades back, David Allen Sibley burst onto the scene with an amazing new bird field guide, The Sibley Guide to Birds. Actually, this wasn't technically a field guide, it was way too large. But the amazing paintings that Sibley created, combined with the wonderful layout and the natural history content, won people over quickly. Uh, within a few years, he released some smaller versions, true field guides, one for the Western and one for the Eastern part of North America. These are probably the most popular bird field guides on the market right now. Insects and plants are particularly hard for field guides. There's just so many species. Think about insects. There's hundreds of thousands of species just in the United States. So this is really a case where local is better, and specific taxa, better yet. And even then, you'll have to resign yourself so that sometimes you'll just be able to identify down to a genus or a family. You won't be able to get to a species. Since I currently live in California, there's a couple books that really jump out at me. As an example, there's The Field Guide to Spiders of California and the Pacific Coast States by R.J. Adams, and then California Plants, A Guide to Our Iconic Flora by Matt Ritter, The former is part of a big series of of texts and guides from the University of California Press. Almost all of those that I've purchased have been great, so I'll be sure to link to a few other ones in the show notes. My second class of tools are actually apps for your mobile phone. There's a huge spectrum of coverage here. Some of these help with identification. Others allow you to keep track of your own observations. Some of the apps tell you what other people are seeing. And some of the apps actually cover all of that eBird by Cornell University is probably the first naturalist app I really started using heavily. eBird allows you to track what you see, see what others are seeing in an area, and the latter part is actually a relatively new feature that they added here in 2020. Now I'm talking about the phone app. In the website, it's even more full-featured. If you go to their website, you'll find all sorts of tools that help you research areas, research specific species, take a look at maps, see trends, see historical viewpoints and graphs. I'm going to link to a really good eBird video that was made by Matthew Dotter of Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society. Matthew's video on YouTube goes through how to use eBird in many different ways and from many different perspectives. And a side note, Matthew was actually a guest on the podcast recently. If you're a birder, you'll definitely want to listen to that episode. iNaturalist is an amazing app and is my next recommendation. It uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to help you identify organisms of all types, plants, fungi, insects, mammals, fish, you name it. There's a huge network of experts that also contribute to the site and they help review and clarify observations the artificial intelligence identification is pretty good but does sometimes give a false sense of confidence as i said before there are a lot of insects and plants that are very hard to identify by photograph alone that's where the experts come in i wrote a blog post a few weeks ago about how to overcome some of these limitations The app also allows you to keep track of the things that you've seen and where you've seen it. And you can also use it like a journal. There's so many great things to say, I could probably have a whole episode on this. I love the fact that I can interact with experts such as Dennis Paulson, author of the Dragonfly Field Guide I mentioned earlier. As you may have picked up, I do have birding tendencies. One of my favorite apps is BirdNet. It's an amazing resource that turns your phone into a bird call identification device. And it also integrates with iNaturalist. You can record calls or songs that you hear, submit it for analysis, and within a few seconds, you get a suggested list of identifications. Like most artificial intelligence and machine learning systems, it's not perfect, but it is quite good. And you can save your observations for later analysis, adjust recording amplification, and more. Cornell also has an identification app called Merlin. Similar to iNaturalist, you can upload photographs and it will give you an identification of what the photograph is. It's even pretty good at identifying some of the difficult species in cases where maybe a species is molting or a juvenile or somewhere in between. It's a great tool too. There are many other field guides available in app format as well. I mentioned the print field guides before, but... Some of the app field guides have advantages because you can get dynamic updates. They keep up with taxonomic changes. They may add new information or improve illustrations over time. And they can also integrate bird calls and have links to other sources of information. The one that I like to use is called iBird Pro. Now let's talk about optics. When you're out in the field, often you need some visual aid beyond just what you can see with your eyes. A good starting point when you're looking at plants or insects is a good hand lens or a loop. I use the bellomo 10x loop it's really easy to overlook the small details and plants or totally miss small insects oftentimes these details are what you need to be able to identify what you're seeing these tools are lightweight easily fit in a pocket or on a lanyard around your neck like i said the bellomo 10x loop is the one that i use it's a good combination of quality and durability and it's not too expensive of course a good camera can't be beat now the topic of cameras goes probably way beyond what i can cover here in this episode Uh, But I will tell you this, if it weren't for my camera, I probably never would have become a naturalist in the first place. Being able to photograph interesting things to investigate later at your own leisure is a great way to learn. Of course, the camera capabilities, sizes, costs, they vary dramatically. So I'm not gonna even attempt to cover all of that. But I will tell you a little bit about what I use. My current camera is a digital SLR. It's the Canon 7D Mark II. And my go-to lenses are a 100 to 400 millimeter image stabilization lens. It's the second version of that lens. It's really good. It has a good close focusing capability and that 400 millimeter focal length allows me to zoom in on distant subjects. I also like the 100 millimeter F 2.8 macro lens. This is what I use primarily for macro photography of insects and flowers. When I'm in the field, I use a device to secure my camera called a cotton carrier. It allows me to secure the camera snugly against my chest, makes it very easily accessible, but keeps my hands free. So if I'm hiking or scrambling through rocks, I don't have to worry about my camera being loose or flopping around like you would with a strap. Perhaps the most important optical gear is binoculars. Again, there's a huge range of capabilities and prices. So I'll just give a few tips on what to look for in a good set of binoculars. My first recommendation is don't worry too much about the magnification. It's really easy for vendors of binoculars to emphasize extra magnification. But the more that you have, the harder it is to hold the binoculars still and the larger they become. They're bulkier, harder to carry around. So I usually recommend something that's an 8X or 10X magnification. Some people like 12X, but that's probably about as far as you could possibly stretch it. And there's trade-offs, of course. As you get into higher magnification, They will get bigger and they will get more expensive. The other things to look for are the objective lens diameter, a large diameter means that more light will be able to make it through. And you're going to be able to pick up details of things that you see in dense forests or at sunrise or sunset, or just when the light is dimmer, when you're looking at the specs, you might see something that says something like eight by 42, that would mean eight X magnification and a 42 millimeter objective lens. That's actually a pretty good spec. You might also want to look for the specification about how closely you can focus with the binoculars. Some binoculars might be able to focus on things that are maybe 10 feet away. Others might have special close focusing capabilities and allow you to focus 5 feet away. This could make a huge difference if you're out looking for things like butterflies that may be closer, or if you're looking for birds that might be further away. Binoculars can easily cost $1,000 or more, but those really high-end optics aren't necessary for you to get started. What they do allow you to do, though, is reduce some of the color fringing and other artifacts that you have with lower end optical gear. They have high light transmissibility, so you'll be able to see better in dim conditions. With that in mind, I'm not going to recommend a thousand dollar pair of binoculars for someone starting out. As is often the case, though, it's probably not the right choice to pick a cheap pair to start off. You'll quickly outgrow those. They may not last very long. So what I tend to recommend to people, if you have the budget, is the Nikon Monarch series. They have different capabilities and price ranges within that series, so there's a lot to choose from. But they're still a go-to because they're high-quality, well-made, and they have a great warranty. The Monarch 5s, which has an 8x42 option, you can find those for under $300. And they do have high-quality features like extra-low dispersion glass. The binocular market is huge, so there are plenty of other great vendors out there as well. I'd recommend you do some Google searching, and you'll find a lot of reviews that compare the different price ranges and specifications. So there you have it, my cool tools for nature identification. Be sure to leave me comments about what you think are useful tools for you in nature identification, and be specific. I'd love to hear more about what you all are using. Perhaps in the future we can get a little bit deeper into some of these areas, You can find links to everything I mentioned in the show notes at podcast.naturesarchive.com. If you want to email me directly, you can reach me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. We live in a world where soundbites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at nature's podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word. I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.